So for the past several weeks, we've been looking at Jesus in the entire Scripture, that is the Old Testament and the New Testament, and looking at various stories that help us to see Jesus throughout Scripture. I have in my hand here a children's storybook. Heather and I had something similar to this uh, long ago when we raised, uh, when our two daughters were very young. We'd uh, read various stories in in the evening to Becky and Aaron. And let let me recount the beginning of one story. As I recall, it starts out, the enemies of God's people came out to fight. They sent their best fighter out first. His name was, and Becky and Aaron would both say, Goliath. They thought that was an exciting story. And it is an exciting story. It describes great desperation, great deliverance. It describes great risk, great reward. And I like to think it was described a situation that was literally a long shot. So let's go into David and Goliath. But before we do, let's look at the story of the Bible because we're going to be talking about a particular concept this morning that helps us to interpret Scripture. So it's God's story. The Bible is God's story. It's divine revelation. It's not about me or what I should do. It's about the fullest revelation of God, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We didn't write it. It's defined by him. The Bible is an unfolding story. It's not done. It came to us over time. Lots of different authors. Christ brought clarity to what had happened earlier when he came to earth. And not only those two things, God's story and an unfolding story, it's one big story. It's redemptive historical revelation. You can't just read one passage in isolation. You have to read them all. It would be like reading one chapter in the middle of an exciting novel, and you come in cold into that chapter. You have no idea of what came before, what comes after. And all the little stories in, this, in Scripture lead to one big story. And on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24 tells us that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. That really sets the pace for us in how we interpret scripture. It sets the bar. So where do we start as we attempt accurate and fair interpretation of scripture? So I have an analogy, you know, a human interest story that I think is apt here. When you fly a plane, you pay attention to a multitude of things. You have to. It's kind of a juggle to keep everything in equilibrium. However, airspeed is king. Without airspeed, the plane doesn't stay up. Literally, it falls. Without airspeed, a plane doesn't work the way it was designed to do. Airspeed is king. And it's not the only thing you pay attention to when you fly, but it's a primary thing. And so it is with Scripture, where context is king. Without context, Scripture doesn't work the way it was designed to do, to communicate God's glory, 
about the Lord Jesus Christ. Context is king. It's not the only thing we look at, but it's a primary thing. So this may be new to some of you, the idea of context. Well, what's context? Doesn't the dictionary define what a word means or what a phrase might mean? Let me, let me pose an example to you. If I said to you the word to, what do I mean by the word to? What do I mean? What could I mean by the word to? A number two? Also? Toward. I'm going to somewhere. So let me ask you again. If I said to you the word two, what might I mean by that? Two books. Now, why do you say that? It's because you got a clue. You're looking for clues. And so we say context. We look into scripture for clues as to help us define meanings, define themes. Context is king. So... We can talk a little bit more about context, particular types of context. We'll drill into it a little bit. There is close context. That's the immediate context. We look down, looking down, meaning we look down at Scripture and we see what the story is about. What does it say? What does it actually say? It's God's story. What did he say to me right here as we look down at the story? There's a recognition that we're on a continuum. We live in a continuum. And so we have continuing context, and it starts all the way at the beginning. As we look back, we see an unfolding story that continues even today. And what is framing an account, uh, what is framing this account from the past? We have to ask that. What frames this account? What was revealed from before to the author who wrote what we're reading now? What did the author know as he wrote the story? The New Testament authors knew that they were writing in light of the Old Testament, and they wrote to interpret what it meant. So we have close context, we have continuing context, and then we have complete context. We're talking about completing the story It'll become complete as we look ahead. It's one big story from one end to the other. We know where it's going. We have the answer key in the New Testament. And when I see the words, one big story, the engineer in me says, ah, we've got a system here. We see things as a system. And in the system, in any system, when you poke something over here, Something happens over here. Something results over here. It's not in isolation. It's a large system. And I think I say that because I think how often we humans analyze things in a vacuum rather than as a system. It's a job-related hazard of being a human being, I think. So often we analyze things. We're prone to analyze in a vacuum rather than as the system, as the big Context. So now for the story in 1 Samuel 17. We're talking about David and Goliath. 1 Samuel is about three characters Samuel, Saul, and David. 
Samuel has already told King Saul that God has rejected him as king. David was then anointed king by Samuel. And so how did that work? There seemed to be a period of time when was a little unsure who was king. God was sure, but there was a transition period, and that's when the incident of David and Goliath took place. So let me read you that story. It's 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkot and Azekah in Ephestemim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood in the mountain on one side, and Israel stood in the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why have you come out to draw up for battle?' Am I not a Philistine, and you are not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was a son of Epaphrodite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. And take these ten cheeses for the commander of the thousands. See if your brothers are well, and bring me some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper, and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, 
fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So it shall be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him towards another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who had delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And then he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David and his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the Israels, the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host to the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the God sa- saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and 
flung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, where he put, ar- where he put his armor in his tent. Later on, David also brought the head of Goliath with him to meet Saul. David carried that head everywhere, apparently. (laughs) So as we've done in past Sundays, we'll look at the blind readings of this story. Kind of a long story here, but I think, I suspect you probably heard some things you hadn't remembered or hadn't hadn't uh, heard before in this account. There's kind of a lot of details. I thought I would read it. So we'll talk about the blind readings, the fuzzy readings, and the crystal clear 2020 readings, as we've been doing every week here. So it is possible to read the story of David and Goliath and completely miss Jesus. If you really wanted to interpret this story wrongly, how would you do this? Well, let's go through some examples of that. You could see David as the underdog hero. And don't we all love, just love to to root for an underdog, kind of our, our nature? Well, here's the approach to that. David's the underdog hero, the little guy taking down the big guy up against impossible odds. David defeating Goliath is just like watching underdog themes in the latest Marvel movie. David's an unlikely hero with exceptional powers. Yes, of course, we know that he got those powers from God, but an unlikely hero. He's quite the hero indeed. So what's the problem with that? Well, it's not a bad start. True, not a bad start to reading the story, but it's a terrible place to stop reading the story. Why is that? It's because while David does some heroic things in this story, and these heroic actions do form the basic plot of what we just read, there are much deeper purposes and uh, connections. We can begin to see these purposes and connections when we read the story in the light of the Bible's big story, that big story that we mentioned before. So to see David as the underdog hero is not a bad place to start, but it's not a good place to stop. So here's another blind reading. Facing the giants in your life. The approach goes like this. It's about when ordinary people face the giants in their lives, like trying to beat the football team that seems to win the uh, state title every year, or getting... into a college that's difficult to get into or another giant dealing with a bully, for instance. Overcoming impossible odds. 
It's about 3,000 years ago on a battlefield in ancient Philistine. A shepherd boy felled a mighty warrior with nothing more than a stone and a sling. And ever since then, the names of David and Goliath have stood for battles between underdogs and giants. David's victory was improbable and miraculous. He shouldn't have won, and yet he did. So if we follow David's example, we too can face and defeat giants in our lives. That's the approach to this blind reading. But the problem, after all, we want to just not read the Bible and apply it to our, 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 our life um, in a vacuum. Yeah, the story in David and Goliath is a story about a seemingly ordinary shepherd boy, seemingly, facing and defeating a giant. It's true. However, the text nowhere promises and nowhere implies that we should appropriate for ourselves the details of this plot um, that the narrative shows. It nowhere tells us that if we will follow David's example, we too can face the giants in our lives. So... This approach to the story makes a massive jump in the wrong direction. This way of reading the story makes it about us instead of about Jesus first and then us after that. If we go from the story directly to us and skip over Jesus, we're not applying it correctly. We can apply this story to us, but only after we connect it to Jesus. So let me suggests another blind reading of this. We can call that moralisms. For instance, you could say, be like David. David was a hero, a risk taker. So you should be like David. I should be like David. Moralism defines moral character. Or another one, don't be like Goliath. He was an arrogant bully. You shouldn't be like him. I shouldn't be like him. My kids shouldn't be like him. Or you can take it further and a little bit more out of the moral character of someone. And you can say, don't put all your eggs in one basket like those wicked, uncircumcised Philistines. You can pull that in a vacuum out of there. Or from everybody's From everybody's favorite source of wisdom, Google, you could say, the largest gaps in ability are all overcome when God is on your side. Moralisms. And we see endless other examples of this that society insists on using and then scratches its head and mops its brow when it discovers these don't work. Well, why don't they work? What's the problem with just saying simple moralisms are what we take from Scripture? I think it's this, a moralism alone lacks power to comply, lacks power to actually bring about that moral character in a person. A moralism is a self-improvement lesson without power, and it's often a frustrator for self, for kids, for others around us. Christian morality without Christianity is like saying law without gospel. It doesn't produce and it doesn't save. Are we trying to convince our kids or ourselves to behave Christianly without actually teaching Christianity? It's discouraging for self and for kids and for others when the source of power isn't kept in the forefront. So as we read Scripture, let's be careful with just pulling moralisms 
out of it. So those are a few of the blind readings that we can suggest. We need to dig deeper. So what about fuzzy readings? Those things that are indistinct, not quite clear. They're true, but they're fuzzy. It's possible to read the story of David and Goliath and make connections to Jesus. Fuzzy, indistinct, unclear. Connections do exist, but they, if, if we really expect to uh, hold to the bar that Jesus set on the Emmaus Road when he talked about himself in all the scripture, then we need to make connections that will comply with that. Fuzzy interpretations are right, just incomplete, incomplete. So we can look at David's remarkable faith in God. That's the first fuzzy reading. Here's the approach. First Samuel 17 tells us that Saul and all Israel were dismayed and greatly afraid in the face of Goliath's challenges. <clears throat> Saul was said to be a very tall man. And so if you recall that the, the, the particular verse in First Samuel 17 said, Saul and all Israel were, great, were dismayed and greatly afraid. I think what Goliath intended was that Saul would come out, their leader would come out and fight him, a leader who was a tall guy as it, as it went. And so um, Israel was just faithless in, the response, uh, of, in their response. David responded with remarkable faith. And that's true. Just as David trust, uh, trusted God to deliver him from his problems, Jesus also trusted in God to, li- to deliver him from the face of his accusers and violent men who were against him. So, if we make the jump, we too, when we face difficulties, should also be like David and like Jesus and trust God when life is hard. And the problem is that David does indeed display remarkable faith in this package, uh, passage. And yet, that does remind us of the perfect faith um, of Christ that he ultimately displayed on the cross. True. However, there's an even clearer way to see this connection by seeing David as a type, a type being a foreshadowing of Christ. And this is better seen when we connect the immediate story in David's life to what has come before and what comes after in this one big story. And since God has revealed himself most clearly in Jesus, and since the focal point of Jesus was his work on the cross, then we're particularly looking for examples of the gospel, the cross. So, remarkable faith. We don't just display remarkable faith and trust God like David or like Jesus. We trust in God because of the greater David, Jesus Christ, and what he did on our behalf. It's not that we do what Jesus would do. Rather, it's remembering what Jesus did. So another fuzzy reading. We could look at defeating Goliath and defeating Satan. This approach goes something like this. Goliath was inspired, empowered by Satan. Look at the Think of the descriptions of him that we read in the text um, in 1 Samuel 17. His height was six cubits 
in a span, something like seven feet or greater, and the versions that you can read uh, differ on how tall he actually was. But everything in this account depicts him as a hulking, intimidating man, um, regardless of his height. Scripture describes six pieces of armor, his chainmail coat. When you do the math from what the Bible, uh, what the what the footnotes in the Bible talk about uh, conversions of shekels to pounds, you find out that his chainmail coat alone weighed about 125 pounds, and then there was the rest of the armor. Think of carrying a backpack, 125 pounds uh, plus more. Um, and get anywhere with it. His spearhead was 15 pounds, not to uh, mention the size and weight of the shaft that the scripture uh, pointed out was large. And then there's a number of other sixes in this account. We know that 666 is the mark of the beast, who is an um, an agent of Satan. So the jump we make is that David defeating Goliath, who was an agent of of Satan pictures Jesus defeating Satan himself. So what's the problem? It's basically a fanciful reading of the story. Fanciful meaning over-imaginative, unrealistic. It takes details and makes an allegory, a story out of them. The text doesn't give any significance to all these details other than that they are to intimidate. Saul was an... uh, Goliath was an intimidating man. And there is a connection uh, of Goliath to Satan and in Jesus uh, with David, but we have a much better way to make these connections as we look at some of the 2020 or crystal clear readings of the story. So God chose what is weak in the world to to shame the strong. This account pictures the theme of the cross. Let's consider that. In 1 Corinthians 1, and that's, uh, we've been through that in our sermon series, Paul explains in verse 27 that in the message of the cross, God takes what is foolish and weak in this world and uses it to shame the wise and the strong. And through the message of the cross, and though the message of the cross is folly to the world, To those who are being saved, the message of the cross is the power of God. And this is one of the main themes in this story of David and Goliath. And it's woven throughout the Old Testament. God put put them in there, uh, in the scriptures on purpose to prepare readers to understand how God works, to prepare us for Christ. The author of 1 Samuel goes to great length to emphasize the strength of and impressiveness of Goliath while he describes David in very unimpressive, in weak terms, a young shepherd boy who simply is there to serve his brothers. We know that David is weak in the eyes of others. Several people had mocked David, including Saul, thinking he's young and foolish. How can he fight Goliath? And yet God took what was weak and foolish in this world to shame the strong and the wise Goliath. When we consider what God did in the story of David and Goliath, it should point us to how he has done this in an even greater way at the cross. When we find themes of the cross in Scripture, we're probably on the right track in good interpretation.
Here's another 2020 reading. The Davidic king saves his covenant people. This account points to the type of the cross or the foreshadowing of the cross. David is an important figure in the Old Testament. However, his importance doesn't primarily come from the fact that he was Israel's greatest human king. It doesn't even come from the fact that he did so many incredible things in his kingdom, like defeat Goliath, among other things. The reason David is so important is because God made a covenant with him. New Testament writers refer to that covenant that God made with David. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that one of his descendants would rule over the people of Israel forever as the son of God. David's kingdom would never be taken away from him. Saul's kingdom was taken away from him. God rejected him. God promised that he would never do that for David's kingdom and all his descendants. So the first of those descendants of David was Solomon. God would discipline the descendants, Solomon and the following descendants, including eventually Jesus, as he substituted for us on the cross. God disciplined Jesus as well. 2 Samuel 7 says that God would discipline. But Matthew, in Matthew 1, the first chapter in the lineage, it shows us that Jesus is in the line of David. But that kingdom would never cease. David is a king of Israel, acts as the champion of Israel, and delivers them from their greatest enemy, David, and, uh, Goliath and the Philistines. David saved God's covenant people. And this prefigures and foreshadows a greater king and a greater deliverer, Jesus, the ultimate offspring of David. And Jesus is a true and eternal king, acts as the champion of his people, and delivers them from the greatest enemy, sin and death our greatest enemy. Jesus, the Davidic king, saves his covenant people, all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And so the third out of three, 2020, crystal clear readings. The seed of the serpent is crushed. This account proclaims the theology of the cross. So here's Goliath's head. And let's hearken back, and we'll discuss that in a bit. Let's remember the three aspects of context that we mentioned earlier. We said context is king. So the immediate context here, as we look at this 2020 reading, the seed of the serpent is crushed. The first way we look at it is looking at the close context. Notice that 1 Samuel 17 seems obsessed with the head of Goliath. That's what I sh- that why I showed that. David, David carries it around with him everywhere to Jerusalem. The text emphasizes his head. He said he would cut off his head, and he did. He told Goliath he would do that, and he did. And then looking at the continuing or the back context... We watch the beginnings of this conflict all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. From the very beginning of the fallen world in Genesis 3, God promised Satan that there would be an enmity between him and the offspring of the woman. God tells the serpent that God is initiating a conflict where her offspring is going to crush Satan's head. 
Satan would bru- the serpent would bruise his, the offspring's heel, but the offspring would crush the serpent's head, Satan's head. And Genesis has this theme over and over in Genesis alone. Satan would strike his fair share of blows against that offspring, and he continues to strike his fair share of blows against offspring even today, but eventually the woman's offspring would crush Satan's head. The author of 2 Samuel 7 continues this theme where God would cut off his enemies. The battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman begins in Genesis and then traces throughout the whole Old Testament. So that's the close contact, the actual story. David said he would cut off the head. The continuing context where, starting in Genesis chapter 3, we understand there's a conflict, there's a battle that's going to go on. And then looking at the complete or the forward context, we can clearly see the ultimate conclusion of the battle in Romans chapter 16, Revelation chapter 12. Romans chapter 16, 20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The battle ultimately culminates in Christ as he defeats Satan through the power of the cross. In Revelation 12, the woman gave birth to a male child who would rule all the nations of the earth, who was caught up to God in his throne. Eventually, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. That's the complete context. I like to say that Kevin Munger likes to say, ultimately, Jesus wins. And here it is, Jesus wins. So several details in this passage illustrate how Goliath represents the seed of the serpent. He's an enemy of God and God's people. He certainly has bruised their heel, defeating their warriors, causing them to cower in fear. Goliath clearly wanted to wipe out God's people. And finally, David, the seed of the woman, defeats Goliath by crushing his head with a a, uh, stone and then lopping it off with Goliath's own sword. So some concluding thoughts. We don't want to just play fast and loose as we interpret Scripture easy to do. We don't want to play fast and loose. We're not searching for Jesus under every rock, under every stone. There has to be clear connections. We look for clear reminders of Christ's ultimate work on the cross. Those are the, that's the clue. And when we find that, we know we're on the right track. We look at the whole of Scripture, not just pieces of it, not just in a vacuum. We realize that New Testament is the answer key to the Old Testament. We have the answer key. It's like having the the answer key at the end of the book for all the problems in the math book. I didn't like math books. And then we realize context is king. Context, something has to be. We've got to start somewhere. And context is a really good place to start. As I said before, it's not the only thing we pay attention to but it's a primary thing. Well, five minutes for questions. Do we have any questions? David and Goliath, context is king. 
the types of context, close context, continuing context, complete context. Any questions? All right, let me close in prayer. Father, help us to be good students of your word, your revelation. We want to see Christ. We want to see and comprehend his death and resurrection. We want to be excited about the gospel. Lord, would you help our hearts to burn as the hearts of those on the Emmaus Road in that account where Jesus described all the things in all the scriptures concerning himself. Lord, give us hearts that would comprehend and burn for that. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the account of David and Goliath and how we see connections to the cross. In your name we pray, amen.